you have to be working with your local communities even before a crisis happens because you want to have anywhere you're operating understand that you are a partner who is having a positive impact. podcast. I'm here today with Elena Francis. Now Elena has got a lot going on in her world. She is a senior communications leader. She does a huge amount in the philanthropic and charity space as well. She's originally from across the pond. So, you know, but living (laughs) in the UK now with a a Welsh husband. So nice to see you, Elena. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm absolutely honored. Oh, fantastic. And we managed to actually get our diaries sorted out really quick. So I'm delighted yes. that we managed to do that. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. So Elena, listen, we're going to hear all about what you've been up to in your fabulous career and business life so far, and also all the great things you're doing for charity, because I know you've got a lot going on there. But do you mind just starting by giving us a little bit of a background in terms of kind of where life started for you and, and how you've ended up in the position you're in today? Yes, of course. Um, so I'm originally from a suburb of New York City. Um, I was born on Long Island. Um, and uh, I absolutely loved, always loved New York City from a very young age. So, um, you know, really studied hard, wound up living in New York City for uh, in total over 20 years in New York City. Um, and in that time cultivated my career. Um, I was always sort of passionate about communicating and the media, um, I always sort of looked at, there was three major sort of spheres of influence, uh, one being government, one being private sector, and the third one being the checks and balances of, of journalism. And so I always had a sort of passion for communicating And so I wound up working, uh, my original role was book publicist. And then I wound up finding my way to um, technology, finance, working at much larger organizations, uh, heading up crisis communications, branding, uh, things of that matter. So, and somewhere in the middle of that, I met my Welsh husband. And uh, I also wound up getting my MBA at night uh, while working full time in finance and marketing. So there was there was a lot going on and also charity work too, which we'll talk about that later. So that, that's the Cliff Notes version. That's the short version. Oh, fantastic. Well, yeah, huge amount going on here. And, and actually, you know, you mentioned then as you were saying, Elena, and it, it took me back to my parts of my old career really in terms of dealing with crisis and how communication is absolutely critical. So in the travel industry, you know, there can be anything, 9-11, Global oh, pandemic, yeah. ash cloud, repatriation, hurricanes, deaths in resort. I mean, you name it. It's that, you know, it's that kind of industry. But can you just talk a little bit around how you approach kind of communicating during a crisis? And maybe you could bring out some of the some examples if you're able to, because I think it's something that people feel very nervous about when something goes wrong, how to communicate in the right way. A hundred percent. I always look at, um, so communication for any organization is absolutely crucial. I like to say, I like to say that communication is kind of like air. You don't realize how important it is until you don't have any. And so uh, communicating, communicating for a crisis starts way before a crisis. So you really have to, you know, operate obviously as a fair and just company and, you know, have all of your sort of, uh, corporate social responsibility, you have to be 
working with your local communities even before a crisis happens because you want to have anywhere you're operating understand that you are a partner who is having a positive impact. But of course, crises arise. And one of the biggest ones I had was 9-11 uh, litigation. I was working for an insurance company at the time. And with any crisis, I would say first getting to the core of what the issue is. Um, it's, you know, look, things always go wrong. And there's, there's no way to have a crystal ball and, and know ahead of time what's going to happen. The most crucial point is how you respond and the amount and the timing of your response. So even if a company may be guilty of malfeasance, if they take ownership and address it in a meaningful way, that always mutes what the situation is. So in some cases, it's a miscommunication where a crisis has happened, but the organization isn't at fault. And then that's where communication comes in to clarify um, which was a large part of the 9-11 litigation I dealt with. And in some cases, there is actual malfeasance in which the, the organization really has to work to determine how they're going to fix the problem or deal with it or address it. So there's two paths one can take. One is to alleviate confu confusion or misinformation. And the other one is much harder and more challenging is to actually fix the problem and then communicate how you're how you're going to do that. Yeah, and it's, it, it, I, I find this whole area fascinating, fascinating because I think very often organizations are worried about almost saying sorry or apologizing for something because then they think, oh, my gosh, that means that we're admitting we're at fault. So I don't know how you help the businesses that you've been involved in and the clients that you have on how do you bridge across that, saying the right thing, doing the right thing, but at the same time, protecting the interests of the business from a legal point of view, because I think you get this tension quite regularly. Oh, no, 100%. Um, and again, it really does take difference of, uh, there is a massive difference of, is there confusion or is there actual malfeasance? So in the case where there is actual malfeasance, um, every case is going to be completely different. Um, you know, there will be cases where uh, there was a hedge fund manager recently, I won't go into too many names, but bad behavior on behalf of this one individual was systemically um, allowed to persist. And so there's a chain of accountability that is going to, you know, has a very long tail. And so that's obviously one of the worst situations um, that you can have where, you know, something had gone on and on and, you know, it, it went unchecked. Whereas if, you know, I've had situations where, you know, there's been data breaches or, um, you know, one employee, there was a, an oversight and there was embezzlement or, you know, what have you. And if it's one instance, um, that's in the broader scheme of things easier to deal with because you can say, okay, in the very short term, you know, whatever the negative outcome is, we are evaluating it and we are investigating and we take this very seriously. So that's not admitting guilt or apologizing for anything. You don't want to apologize preemptively if you haven't been found of any wrongdoing or, you know, if it was just an accident, um, you know, or a glitch. So it really, you have to look at every situation individually. There's no one playbook 
that will allow for the same positive outcome to occur. And in some cases, you really have to manage your expectations, whereas in the 9-11 litigation, there would never be a positive story because obviously so many people died and it had such a negative impact. Getting just correct information out there and neutralizing wrong or misleading uh, information was really the goal there. So... Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? And and of course, I mean, I've been in, I've been media trained um, in my previous role, and that in itself is quite is quite, it feels very real. It feels quite scary when you know they come and I remember being on the streets in London, and they you know go out for lunch, and then they obviously it's all staged, but you don't know that at the time, and then there's been boom pushed in your face saying three of your guests have just been murdered in Egypt. Yes. What are you doing about it? You know, and it's actually really hard to to know in those senior leadership positions how to deal yes. with like, you know crisis like that. And um, would you typically, in your uh, experience, Elena, have been the spokesperson, or are you working with the leadership and with the you know the the executive board sometimes to help them be the spokespeople? Um, I have done both, actually. So in some cases. Um, it just makes sense to get collective answers. So, you know, sometimes, obviously, these things are very, these situations can be extremely nuanced, and I have to get input from compliance, from legal, from the business side. There are many players, and instead of confusing it, I sort of collate all of the responses, and then I can act as the single conduit to deliver the, the messages. Um, but in some cases, again, depend, it is crisis dependent. Um, in some cases, it makes sense for, um, you know, a CEO or, you know, some other person to be the, the point person for that. So it really is kind of could go either way, really. Yeah, no, absolutely. And how do you keep calm, Elena, when, when maybe other people are flapping around how do you keep such a such a calm persona about yourself in times of times of crisis and trouble I mean I think I am literally biologically wired to just um you know stand still in the middle of chaos and fire in really outrageous situations um so in many companies I've worked for I also work with their um they call it BCM, uh, business continuity management. So obviously you have operations people, legal people, whatever different planning for any crisis. So whether it's employee hurt at the office, you know, uh, natural catastrophe, what have you, anything. In America, it could be any kind of a shooting, you know, it happens. Um, I have always been that first point person to go to. And so um, for some reason, I just, when, when something comes up, I immediately just say, okay, you have to get into, um, I'm reading a book now by a crisis uh, negotiator, sorry, hostage negotiator, who has this thing called Red Center. And effectively, um, hostage negotiators have to first come together and say, what is happening right now? And just be very methodical and say, this is the, the problem at hand. What are the facts that are available to us right now? Who are the people that need to be involved? And then just, you have to take it as if you're almost making a sandwich. Okay, you have your bread, you have your butter, you have your meat, you have your what have you. And then it's assembly time and what's gonna make sense to put things together in sort of the right order. But I mean, I was working in a New York City uh, high rise building 
and we had not one but two separate fires in that building and so you know you think okay first we get everyone out but then you have to communicate and then even clients coming to the office like it's multiple levels of having to communicate so i don't know for some reason i just have this you know i just go into methodical mode and i just start assembling okay what needs to be done and breaking it down into bite sized pieces Brilliant. Well, I know who I want on my team at the time of a crisis, <laughs> Elena. So I'm very glad to have met you. <laughs> That's fantastic. And, and Elena, you talked a, a bit earlier when you were talk, when you were doing your intro that you you also got your MBA at the same time as while you were working. And did you have a family at that point as well, Elena? Um, so the last year of getting my MBA, um, I was also planning my wedding. So at the time, I have to say, I, there were people in my program that had children while they were doing it. But I, my job was so intense at that time. I would literally be in the office from like 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. and then go to you know to classes at in the evening from 6 to 9 p.m. And this was happening. I mean, we had one uh, week where I had. Uh, like a major testing within my class but i also so i had the test on monday and tuesday and then literally i went to work wednesday morning and i worked through the night through the next day went home to shower and because we had this major business deal going on also and so that was probably one of my least favorite weeks <laughs> you know like some sometimes were easier than others um but i don't i think you would have to have an incredibly supportive partner at home but then you were also missing that time so I with the, with your kids or whoever you know. So I was glad that I did that before I wound up starting a family. Although some people did it and they 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 mucked through. So you know, more power to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, I'm a massive believer in personal development. You know, I think we should be working on ourselves every day in some shape or form. And obviously, go and get in your MBA while you're working at full time in a really really stressful job. Um, is is you know is an extreme really to a, to a certain degree. But what was the motivation for the MBA for you then, Elena? So funny story. Um, I was working for this insurance company for a year, and then due to some M and A, I my position was eliminated um, because they had you know obviously too many people. I was last in, first out, and so I actually wound up. Um, after I lost that job, I said, you know what, I'm going to go back to school and I'll hedge my bets. I'll apply for new jobs, but I'll also apply for school and see which one shakes out. So I was accepted to the MBA program, um, but I also found a new job. So I just said, well, I'll just do both because, you know, it seems, you know, whatever. The best part of that was that, you know, obviously I was very sad to lose that job uh, because I really liked it and I, you know, was doing well there. But that uh, position, which was eliminated, I wound up getting called back by the same company a year and a half later and being promoted to the position that I had previously reported to. And so, it, you know, the catalyst, it, had I not been laid off, I, I don't think I would have, I always said I wanted to get an advanced degree, but it was kind of like, well, what do I do? When do I do it? But when I lost my job, that was the push. And then I wound up working again at the same company because I left on great terms and I wound up there for many years um, the second time around, and they wound up paying for it. So which that really worked out double for me. Well, I love this. I love this actually, because so often when things happen and and, and you know, it's, it can happen, can't they? A restructure, 
you know, strategy yes. changes. You know, very often you find yourself in a position where, you know, you haven't got a role and it's 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 nine times out of ten nothing to do with your performance. It's just the situation and circumstances. But that can really knock our confidence, you know, and anyone that might be listening to this or watching to this on watching this on YouTube, you know, might be facing a situation like that, that themselves where they're they're just feeling like in a really, you know, not a good place because they've lost a role or, or what what have you. But I love the fact that it went full circle for you. You yes. took the opportunity to say, okay, well. This isn't great, but I'm going to take the chance to educate myself and apply for the MBA. And then there's a sort of symmetry, a justice around the fact that you ended up back at percent organization. But you know, you know, when you lost that job, let's just talk about, about that a little bit. Um, was that a really difficult time for you? Are you or are you the kind of person that's very logical thinker? You know, you talked about logically dealing with a crisis. You know, did you just naturally kind of assess it, lick your wounds a little bit and get on? And and or did you find it quite difficult at that time? Um, I mean, I think in the very short term, I did sort of lick my wounds and I I was quite upset because it was such a um it was a job that really challenged me to grow. Um, and it was, it was my first role working. So I'd worked at PR agencies and then, um, so I was an external vendor and this was my first in-house role working within an organization. And I, I was quite upset because there were so many very intelligent, talented people there. And there was just so much opportunity. It was the largest company I'd ever worked for. And so, uh, and it was a global company. So I was traveling for work. And so I just was so sort of sad about not being able to have that anymore. But once I sort of just said, well, this, it is what it is. And, you know, it's obviously beyond my control. And I knew it was not a matter of performance. I just basically said, you have to pick yourself up and pivot and just say what comes next. And I'm, I'm a big believer in taking calculated risks. So I'm not one who's just going to go off and like, you know, oh, I lost my job. I'm going to go travel the world for two years. Like, which I, I admire people who can do that, but I need to know there is a safety net. So the parallel of, excuse me, applying for jobs and applying for the MBA, I just figured I'm going to throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. And so multiple things stuck at the same time. I just said, well, okay, that's what I'm going to do then. <laughs> Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. And there's a couple of points here. There's one around appetite for risk, right? And and yeah. sometimes you have to take risks. And you know, everything is a risk of walking out the house every day that you'll get run over by a bloody bus, you know. But uh, I, it, it's your you've got to know yourself, haven't you? How far are you comfortable going in terms of pushing the boundaries? Um, and yes. in your case, you, you said, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna place a couple of bets. I'm not placing one. I'm gonna place a couple." <laughs> A couple of bets exactly. and see what happens. See what happens. So, so that's great. Can I talk? You touched about you just mentioned PR, Elena, and um, you know PR very much linked with sort of personal brand as well. And I think personal brand and sort of how you're perceived in the world, it's kind of been there for a long time, but never as much as in today's world. I think of social media and you know yes. everyone's everyone's out there presenting a version of themselves and um, very often which isn't necessarily the true picture the full picture and um, but how important has been sort of personal brand for, for you in your career I mean I I think it is incredibly important because a lot of the work that you do 
you know, internally within, say I've worked at very large organizations. I've worked at small ones too, but especially when you work at a company that has 20, 75, 100,000 people, um, in order to be able to liaise with people, you have to have a high EQ and be able to understand people, but then also be someone who is rememberable, you know, that is memorable, not memorable, memorable. And so, you know, I, I had a very funny situation where I had a, a British colleague who I'd worked with about 10 years ago. Uh, I was living in New York, he was in London, and I just saw him a month ago at an industry event. And it, for better or for worse, he says, he says to me, you're the most New York person I ever worked with. <laughs> and so, you know what, it, I am. I am very much uh, like the quintessential New Yorker, but I, I lean into it. Obviously, I smooth over a little bit because you don't want to be, you know, someone who only can relate to yourself and is there's no sort of entry points or no commonality. Um, but I do really love that I am a New Yorker. Like I would not want to lose my accent or my sort of New York sassiness. Of course, you don't want to have a full frontal attack on people in other countries. <laughs> you know, British society is completely different. And so you have to, you know, be sensitive to how other people want to be approached. But it has to be a mix of being your authentic self, but then also softening enough or sort of sculpting your approach and who you are in order to um, make people feel comfortable around you and that they can be who they are around you. So it, ha it really has to be a delicate balance. But I, I think it's crucial today more than ever because of the amplification, as you said, of social media. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I always think, you know, be yourself, everyone else is taken, is the first thing. Totally. Um, and, you know, and I think you've got to be congruent with your own values and what's important to you and, and how you come out, come across to the world is, is, is sort of, you know, is important. What's a quintessential New Yorker, Elena? What, what <laughs> Describe a quintessential New Yorker. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I would say someone who, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't know if I want to speak for everyone in New York, <laughs> um, but I, I would say that, you know, things that I, I find people are generally inquisitive about or appreciate is, you know, there, there's a degree of the sassiness and the directness, um, but I think that it, it's also, um, New Yorkers, the city is always changing and always evolving. It, it's a living, breathing thing and you have to roll with the punches and you have to have sort of your own boundaries um you know but without sort of stomping too much on other people and so really just being someone who is you know sure of yourself and confident um but you you have to exist i mean new york is a very um vertical city and so people live on top of each other and you're constantly in close quarters so you can't just you know sort of metaphorically manspread, you know, in any way, you have to be aware of other people. And so I think it is the, um, it's, a, it's the positive, it's the acknowledgement of the tension between yourself and other people, and being able to draw those boundaries in ways that they can exist in their space, and you can exist in yours without anyone pushing too far in any direction. Um, so because, you know, there are sometimes people who are 
you push them too much and that's not good. But then also people try to push into your space. And I don't think any New Yorker really wants to put up with that. So I think, I think that kind of summarizes the New York spirit. Fantastic. And I love New York. I think it's a fabulous, fabulous city. But yes, it is very different to Weybridge, where you're living <laughs> yes. now, Elena, isn't it? Life in it's Surrey very... is not the same as life in New York. It's true. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> How have you had to adapt then? Because let's just touch on the cultural differences. I think the interesting thing is, if you've never done business in the US, the perception probably is it's very similar to, to kind of the UK. I've done business or lived, actually. Let's It's not just business. Um, but the reality is, I mean, I've done a lot of business over in the States. And culturally, it's very, it is very different. You think just because we, we share a language that it's exactly the same, but it's not. So, so culturally, how have you had to adapt coming, you know, kind of across the pond and, and now living living in the UK with your with your family, with your Welsh husband yes. in Surrey with your family? <laughs> I'm, I'm a transplant everywhere. Um, um, well, so early in my career, I did more work within America. And even America is such a monolith. And it's, you know, I was living in New York, but I would go to Minnesota, I would go to LA, I would go to San Francisco, I would go to DC, I would go to Boston. And culturally, even though obviously you have the same language and more or less the same sort of, um, you know, sayings, you know, commonality, culturally, I mean, things were done so differently. The way people work, how they work, the hours they work, how they approach things, how they want to do business. So that was the training wheels um, before I wound up working at international companies. Excuse me, I worked with American companies um, for the first couple of years. Then I went to the Swiss company. And so that was a huge jump. I had never been to Switzerland before. And, um, you know, this, the Swiss are very fascinating because they have so many countries bordering them that have culturally influenced them. And so to me, um, that was a real eye opener. Um, so UK was, it's kind of a, I think there are varying degrees. So the easiest transition is within different places within America. Then I think next easiest is UK. I do feel there are commonalities, but there is still a big cultural pond between us. And then other European countries, it starts Western Europe is somewhat like, but then there are more differences than Eastern Europe and then um, APAC region. Um, and then I haven't even talked about Africa or, or Latin America, but anyway, um, but with between the UK and the US, first of all, there are different phrases. So even I've lived here over five years and even simple phrases, I was on a business call and someone said, let's table that discussion. And so I was like, oh, okay. And I was confused because to me, table a discussion means we're not going to talk about it. Whereas in the UK, it means we are going to talk about it. And so, you know, I'm still learning every day, even being with my Welsh partner for over 15 years and previously dated other British people. <laughs> so I've, I've been, spent 20 years of personal relationships with British people and French and whatever. And so I thought it was very funny that it's still that learning, you know, that learning. And even within, you can't expect that what works in England works in Wales or Scotland or Northern Ireland or Republic of Ireland. And so you really do have to be, you know, uh, hyper aware of the micro. You can't, you can't have these expectations that things will work the same. I would say the biggest difference generally between English and American is Americans generally are quite straightforward. You know, what you see is what you get. 
Whereas in England, it is very dance around and you have to sort of, you know, massage for a very long time before this, the point has been, you know, circled around for a long time. And, and that's a huge cultural difference because, you know, if I'm living here, it's the onus is on me to adapt to them. Um, I, you know, if someone came to America, then I would say the learning, it, it should take place on both sides, but I would say more so on the person who's coming from, from somewhere else. So it really, it has been on me to ensure that this happens, um, that I sort of bridge that gap, so to speak. Yeah, I know. I love this. And, you know, I mean, I spent a lot of time when I was at TUI, I was the managing director of the emerging markets. So, you know, I used to have my team in Delhi, my team in Beijing, Brazil, Germany, UK. I, I, I set TUI up in Russia and Ukraine, which is, you know, awful seeing what's happening now. But yeah. the cultural nuances were extreme, obviously, in, in those examples. Yes. And, you know, I, you know, I used to always advise my team, you do not go into this market thinking that you can apply a Western European approach or mm-hmm. even a British approach, because we will fail. We will fail for sure. So you have to respect the environment you're in, the business environment. Obviously, there's legal tax, all sorts of stuff, but just the everyday way of being you yes. know, is very, very different. And I think what, what I found through my experience of that was just really trying to give the team time to sort of understand and assimilate. I used to I used to make sure all of my team went through cultural training, you know, before they even set foot uh, in, in that country, you know, so they could really have an appreciation. And you wouldn't always get it right, of course, but it certainly made, I think, our, my radar and the team's emotional intelligence much higher, which then is useful just in general communication anyway. Um, yes. you know, so I, I think if anyone has the opportunity to work internationally or to experience or travel, you know, and see see different cultures, do it because it will make you a much more rounded uh, person and communicator. Um, I truly believe that. But um, 100%. Yeah, fantastic. And Elena, you're doing a lot in the philanthropic world as well. You know, I know you're a huge advocate for for the charities that you support and that you lead. So can we just talk about that a little bit? Because obviously you've got, you know, the trustee with School Food Matters. You do a lot of charity for sort of women and and, and disadvantaged disabled people in sports as well. So do you want to just talk about the philanthropic side of what you do, why it's important and how you got into that as well? Sure. Um, so I would say that my um, engagement with uh, charities had, is longstanding from my literally from early 20s. Um, I first started, you know, very simple things like um, I worked at a, um, a soup kitchen and I was literally opening cans of tuna and, you know, cutting up carrots and onions and literally for, you know, well over a year. Um, but I've always focused on groups um, that were, um, disadvantaged or, you know, had, had additional sort of struggles. So the, the soup kitchen I worked with, uh, at the time was in the late nineties and that was God's love. We deliver. And that was a charity uh, that was delivering, um, cooked uh, meals for homebound AIDS patients. And so that was something that, you know, at the time, you know, living in New York city, um, supporting people who were, you know, being discriminated against, um, you know, there's a lot of miseducation around AIDS at that time, you know, it was from the 80s to the 90s still going on. 
And then I wound up working with um, uh, charities for women's safety. So I was a trustee on another charity in New York City that was focused on um, safe uh, transportation for women and um, gay trans, you know, individuals. So people who, that were more at risk of getting attacked, say, late at night when they were going home from mm -hmm. work and such. So those are some of my early things there. But I always had this mentality of I've been incredibly lucky to I have my health, I have, you know, my vision. I mean, I one of the most fascinating things I would see is someone navigating the New York City subway system with a a, a seeing stick, you know, like they're they're a blind person. And I, I think to myself, there's no one stronger than that person because New York City is overwhelming in every it's an assault on every sense hearing, sight, smell, everything. And so to have your sight removed from you and be able to navigate is unbelievable. So that was sort of an early motivation. But once I was doing it, I would meet people that I felt had really great values. They were also equally passionate. They wanted to give back to society. So that further motivated me. Um, when I first moved over here, I had a Welsh friend who introduced me to School Food Matters. And um, you know, having I have children, and uh, I've always been passionate about early nutrition being a cornerstone for success in later life. And when I say success, I mean in every capacity, academically, professionally, financially. If you know how what to eat and how to eat well you're at an early age, that sets you up and gives you another sort of quiver in your wait, an arrow in your quiver. That's what it is. Um, you know, more ammunition to be a successful person. Um, obviously, if you have to deal with health issues, um, that's going to um, inhibit you from living your dreams. And so, um, and I've also done a lot of spot work. Um, and then my husband and I, I was, he founded this charity called Jersey for All, um, which effectively match makes um, people who want to donate money with women's and girls uh, sports teams and mixed ability teams, which are teams that have disabled people, um, uh, differently able people, and then um, uh, you know different individuals. Uh, it, but it's very motivating to get that money to them because then they can afford to buy kit and get the supplies that they need, which often statistically um, data shows that often it is boys and men's teams that get this money, which is great. Obviously the money should be going to them, but also to give sort of the equal playing field. Um, you know, I, I, it was the British team uh, during a, a recent Olympics, winter Olympics, where I think it was um, snowboarding or something where the girls, the women's team didn't get any, they had to raise money, whereas the men's team got it, but it was, I, I'm pretty sure it was British team and the, it was the women's team that wound up winning the gold medal. And they had to go through all the extra hoops of getting the money, whereas the men's team was just, it was, it was the default to give it to them. So I'm very passionate about leveling the playing field and helping people to achieve equity um, and, and sort of, you know, the chances they need based on what it is that they want to do. So, so yes, yeah, so I've been doing that for a long time. Um, I effectively help to raise money consult on their fundraising strategy, but also their communication strategy. Um, so really it's just sort of filling the gaps where, you know, wherever the, wherever it's needed, basically. Yeah, fantastic. And, you know, you, you, you talk very, you know, passionately about helping people. And I think there's a sense of fairness 
uh, almost as a thread running through this. You know, it's not fair. Why why should, you know, women's sport not get the funding versus men's sport? Why should it be that someone from, you know, a different background is disadvantaged or whatever, you know? So so I, I, I think it's fantastic what you do. And talking about women in sport, of course, you know, women's rugby, women's football, incredibly topical yes. uh, right now with the Lionesses uh, and their win yesterday against Australia. Um, but, you know, whether it's football, netball, what well, doesn't matter what the sport is, but it, you're right, levelling the playing field has got to be a good thing for society, for sports, for opportunities, you know, for, for all really. And, you know, there were so many times in my career, in my earlier career, where I was the only woman in the boardroom with a P&L, you know, and things are improving, things have shifted, but we've still got a long way to go, whether it's gender, LGBTQ+, you know, disability, whatever, you know, we, we really do need people like you absolutely championing those causes and, and, you know, making the world a better place. So huge well done, honestly, Elena, it's inspiring what you're doing. Really. Thank you. Thank you. Fantastic. And what's been the most satisfying point of your career, would you say? What, what have you, what are you kind of most proud of when you look back through all the things you've done? I mean, I would say, well, I, the one thing that has been most motivating to me is I want to understand how different parts of society work in order to create the collaboration that I think would benefit both parties. So one thing that really motivates me that I am still sort of I'm midway through my journey on and um, I'm hoping to work with further organ charitable organizations like the Prince's Trust um, is the intersection between private sector and philanthropy. So what I mean by that is obviously private sector exists to make money and employ people and, you know, depending on what their services or their products are, you know, to help society function. But I think part of every company has got to be carved out to exactly how you're making substantive positive impact on the communities in which you're operating. And so, you know, I think some people are so sort of focused on being profitable, which is crucial. If you're not a profitable company, then you're going under and then, then you're no good to anyone. Um, but it, being profitable and having a positive social impact does not have to be mutually exclusive. And so I think that, you know, I've, I've worked at some companies that um, have done tremendously good work, um, but there's always ways to create more substantive value and, and a deeper connection. And so, um, you know, I know our connection is the Prince's Trust. And, you know, I went to one of their recent um, events to support women and I was so motivated by it because there are companies that are basically, you know, obviously giving resources and budget toward uh, coaching people from uh, sort of struggling backgrounds or, you know, varying socioeconomic uh, backgrounds and, and sort of coaching them to uh, create jobs. And so I would say that through my career, making those connections and, you know, I've worked a lot with ESG managers, ESG leaders, the decision makers. It's, it's got to be, you know, the point of making sure you have the right connection with the right philanthropic organizations, but then also doing the right work where you're giving enough time, money and resources for them to, to be empowered to do the work. But then also the communications part is crucial to it as well, educating your internal employees about it 
which is incredibly motivating, but getting them to be involved with these projects through, you know, myriad ways. And then also communicating externally, not to, you know, break your arm, pat yourself on your back about look at the great job that we're doing, but to lead by example for other companies to do the same. And so I think it is important to, to speak about these things when you're in the private sector to say, we're putting our money where our mouth is. You know, if we, you know, create, say if we're a, a company that creates shoes, for every shoe that we sell, for every five shoes we sell, we'll, we'll give a pair to a child that doesn't have any shoes. And so making a, a, the right correlation to saying, we are here to exist as a profitable business and to you know exist, um, but that that doesn't mean that we can't extend what we're doing on the other side to make sure it happens. Um, because when you elevate society, there's never going to be a back. There's never going to be a negative outcome to that when you're when you're doing it. I, I I haven't seen it yet. If there is, so yeah. So that's that's my my biggest sort of. Uh, my my the thing I'm most proud of and the thing that motivates me is really that intersectionality between private sector and philanthropy and making those connections. So yeah, fantastic. No, I hundred percent agree with you. And actually, you know, it's uh, not only is it the right thing to do, but it doesn't have to be at the expense of of a profitable organization. You can have profit for good. Uh, and I would argue that, you know, in particular with the whole ESG agenda, which is much more high profile than ever, I think a lot of that in the UK will become legislation as well in, in the not yes, too yes. distant future. Um, so, you know, for organisations that are not already embracing, um, you know, sort of environmental, social and governance, then get you need to get started and get started pretty damn fast. Um, but for the right reasons. But also, I think consumers more and more are choosing who they spend their hard-earned money with. They're choosing who, who they should go and work for based on really important criteria around these areas. So, you know, commercially, you're potentially missing out on spend of wallet and talent in your organization, which is going to have, you know, a negative impact on the financials. So you've got to flip that switch, haven't we? Instead of seeing it as a cost, you've got to see it as an opportunity for, for growth and to be more profitable and to attract the right customers and the right people to, to your organization. Um, yes, so, yeah. 100%. Yeah, no, it's, it's a fascinating area. Um, and, and, you know, Elena, you know, in terms of kind of what, what you're focusing right now, obviously you're still doing a lot. You're doing a lot with the Prince's Trust. And we've got to give Helen Evans a shout out for introducing yes, us. Yes, she's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but she is fantastic. You're plugged in with the Prince's Trust, as am I. And Helen's been the, the matchmaker between us. So big shout out to Helen. Um, but as well as the, the things that you, you've just been talking about there, what, where are you focusing your time and effort at the moment? So really I'm trying to take the best of what I know from private sector. And then as, as say a trustee for School Food Matters, um, really taking that knowledge and helping sort of educate um, different charities on how to better work with, how to better approach, who to target, things like that. But then also on the um, private sector, you know, obviously I'm working for one company now, um, but I do try to meet other people and, you know, create programs and make those connections between my organization and charities that make sense for the kind of work that we do. So, 
that's that's really I mean, I, I'm also starting to take on side projects as well. So I'm only just starting to work with the Prince's Trust. Um, but I am a member of a women's networking organization called Chief, and that's effectively a, like a, a, a global group of women, a senior leadership women um, that are, you know, doing a lot of great things. So I'm trying to make connections between all of those women and organizations like the Prince's Trust to say, you know, where, where can I matchmake? Where can I sort of make those connections that make sense? Um, and then there's also sort of ad hoc things that I'm doing. Um, you know, I've been, I've been an official mentor to uh, women in the past. I'm now unofficially mentoring a, an Olympic athlete who is looking to transition from her athletic career into commercial opportunities. And so, um, you know, I'm super passionate about having women represented in sports and being able to leverage um, as successfully as men who are, you know, athletes at some point obviously retire and then you turn to other things. Um, but what does what does good look like in that sense? Um, she's still an athlete now, um, but really just trying to make those kinds of projects happen, um, you know. And it just, it's super motivating to me. I have a daughter and I have a son. So I want to be an example to both of them to say, you know, be the change and then help, you know, help make that change happen. So hopefully better, better days ahead. Fantastic. Yeah, no, I, in fact, we should get your, your mentee on this show. That might be a really good opportunity as well for, for that transition and sort of have a conversation around, around what happens post retirement from sport. If you're an elite athlete, it's uh, what does the next phase look like? Yeah, I think it's a fascinating area. So we should make yep. that happen, Elena. I will. We're making connections. That's what I'm all about. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, Elena, when you look back through your kind of career in life, I'm sure you've had lots of good advice. I'm sure you might have had some less good advice over the years. But can you think of a really good piece of advice that's, um, that stood you in good stead? So I would say um, I had a manager many years ago who he, this was his own personal proclamation that he was going to keep learning until the day that he died. And so, you know, that I've always been keen on education. I was the kid taking out 12 books at the library and struggling to get them all home. And I would literally go home and just like read a book a day. And so that, that was obviously something that resonated with me because I already was sort of there. But when he articulated it, you know, he signed off on my, um, the MBA, you know, for the, them compensating uh, for that. But he also did his own executive MBA, and then he was doing other programs and his own training. And so to me, I don't feel like you need to get to a point in your life where you say, I'm X years old, I don't need to take any more courses, or I don't need to read another book. I am literally, I finished a book on AI and, uh, you know, how, how your career could be changing because of AI. A friend of mine wrote that book. You could talk to him too. Um, but then also I'm reading a book about, you know, turn of the century, um, you know, uh, health, uh, you know, women's health in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Then I'm reading a book on uh, written by a hostage negotiator. And so having disparate interests and and just going on and on and saying okay pivot to this and then okay a book on venture capital a book on you know 
children's mind and behavior. You know, some of obviously some of these things are important to me right now because, you know, I want to control my children. Um, but, you know, but there's also things that, you know, I have a fair bit of friends who are authors and they're excelling in theirs. I want to support them. So I'm buying their books. But then I wound up saying, oh, my goodness, this is all things that I didn't know. And then it winds up leading to leading me down path. So if I were to say best bit of advice, never think you're too old to learn something new until the day that I die. I want to learn something new every single day. Oh, I love that. Amazing. Yeah. Stay curious, right? Stay curious. Yes. Yeah, hungry. That's curious and hungry. I like that. Fabulous. Well done, Elena. And, um, you know, if you were going to sum up this year in a word, quite difficult to do, but this is, uh, this. I'm always interested in what people, people think about this. So if you could describe this year in one word for you, what would it be and why? I would say evolution. And my the reason for that is that obviously 20, 2020, 2021, and the start of 22 were just shocking you know there there you know covid happened and people were struggling obviously a lot of people had losses you know beyond um which was horrific but we all had to live an entirely different life for years and we didn't know when it was going to end and so people working at home and people you know question relationships or why are we living in a flat instead of a house? And so, yes, it, it was terrible. You know, it, I, I would say that, you know, we, we, we had all those things, but now in 23, I would say that the world is now in this awkward adolescent stage where we have come out of this period of, you know, extensive pain and confusion but now everyone's trying to find their footing. So do people work from home? Are they working in an office hybrid? It, it was the catalyst for all these different changes and all this innovation. And so, uh, well, well, on the positive side, it led to some innovation. So, you know, obviously people created companies or created new products or, you know, created new ways of working. And so that's the positive side. But, you know, the downside, obviously, some people suffered immeasurable losses and trauma, which was terrible. But I think it also, even for those people, made them question what is life really about and what do I want to get out of it? And I think a lot of people are much more motivated to sort of pursue the things that they want because you don't know when your time is up or when the world is going to change again in ways that we never possibly imagined. So you really do have to be more directed toward what it is that you want and how you want your life to look like. So I would say evolution would be the word that I would choose. Fantastic. I love that. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So much has changed. And um, yeah, uh, what did you, how did you describe as an ad adolescent teenager? <laughs> yes, yeah, it is. We're, we're in the pimple stage in the our spots, as you call them, uh, you know, and the frizzy hair. And, you know, how do I, although kids today look much better than when I was a teenager, like we had bad perms and terrible spray tans. Um, or like the spray stuff. Whereas the kids today, you see on YouTube, like, oh, I know how to do the, the I, 11 year olds doing makeup better than I do. And I just, I, I feel great shame. <laughs> oh my, oh my word. We're showing our age, Elena. Now. I know, I know, I know. Oh, I also had some incredible perms in my time as well. So yes, oh, I'm with you. Uh, we're not going to talk about Jennifer Grey and Dirty Dancing and the influence it had on my hairstyles. We're not going to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> let's leave that there let's leave it there that's um yeah so leading on to my last question Elena what does brave bold brilliant mean to you 
I mean, I would say, because I, I did give some thought to this, and to me, I feel, first I'll start with brilliance. Um, I think brilliance is, is going to be different for every person. Obviously, everyone's different. But I think your brilliance is your personal sparkle, your USP, your differentiator. And everyone has it, whether or not you are self-actualized enough to accept it. And, you know, I think some people feel a lot of external pressure to be to succeed in the ways that other people have excelled. And I feel like that's a loss for an individual and it's a loss for society because everyone comes at, you know, a different life experience and different natural abilities to do things. So, you know, for me to try to go out and win an Olympics would be a waste for everyone and to no end because I'm not naturally athletic, but there are things that I'm really good at. And so I think really honing your personal brilliance is crucial. Now, to me, bravery is the internal manifestation of knowing what your brilliance is. And to be brave is to really accept who you are and your self-worth. And the bold part is, you know, sort of forms the trifecta. The boldness is the external representation of your own bravery and your own brilliance. So to me, it's, you know, finding out who you are, being brave enough to accept it and, and really, you know, be sure of yourself. And the boldness is to live your life in, in external, you know, in the world and say, this is who I am. I brave enough to accept it. And then the boldness to, to live that publicly. So I, I think everyone should live that way. Um, and whatever it is that they are, that they own it and they're positive about it. And um, it's just, it's finding your sparkle really. So that's that's how I look at that. No, oh, I love it. I love it, Elena. That's fantastic. <laughs> you have certainly sparkled very brightly today. So uh, Thank you. <laughs> you've shared so much knowledge and information. That's, that's fantastic. And Elena, where can people find you? Uh, well, I'm on LinkedIn and um, I am an early adopter. So um, on my um, LinkedIn profile, which I'll send to you as well, is uh, just the LinkedIn and then the backslash with Elena. And then I'm on Twitter and my handle is at Elena. Um, my other social channels I've sort of are more personal ones, but so Twitter, I generally and LinkedIn are, are my are my social ones uh, like that I promote. Fantastic. Well, we'll put all those details in the show notes so everyone can kind of track you down, connect with you, learn more about what you're doing and, and also where you might be able to help them as well. You know, whether it's communications or in the philanthropic space, you know, you've got a lot going on. So, Elena, thank you so much. You have genuinely been wonderful. I've enjoyed our conversation immensely. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be part of this. It's amazing work you're doing. Oh, thank you, Elena. I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review.